Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad you're here today as we continue on in this series, Mending Fences, really just looking at how can we grow our relationships? How can we sustain them? How can we deepen them? And how can we even mend them if there's been some strain, some stress, or even some difficulty? And so last week, we took a look at how you can mend relationships in and through these twin actions of naming and inviting. Today, then, what I want to take a look at, today what I want to suggest to you is a biblical way to view decisions And this kind of biblical way to view decisions, I really believe that if you kind of grasp it and get it, it will change and alter every single one of your relationships. This will change your parenting, your marriage, your coworkers' friendships, your relationships with your neighbors, all of that. That if we can kind of understand how the Bible views choices, especially in relation to time, that this will help us to make better decisions and to have healthier relationships. What I want to suggest to you is that when the Bible comes to actually talking about decisions, how the Bible thinks is this, that the Bible realizes that decisions you make today last and linger for decades. That's the Bible's kind of position when it comes to really understanding decisions, that the decisions you make today will last and linger really and echo out into the future. This is something we struggle with, I really think, in our Western culture. Because when we think of decisions, we think of now, we are so hyper-individualized that we think most of our choices are very disconnected and isolated from the futures that we are a part of. But what the Bible wants to teach us is that the decisions that you're making today will become the legacy that you leave. They are actually going to impact generations. That's what the Bible wants to teach us. And we might want to kind of push back on some of this, but that's because... We are so actually accustomed to just thinking about now and not thinking that the choices you are making right now are actually going to affect generations. And to give you an example of what I'm talking about, this is kind of the practical outworking of this, that how you are choosing to use your money right now, how you're choosing to handle your finances, this will shape how your kids view their finances. That how you are choosing to deal with that difficult coworker right now, this is actually setting the example for your great-grandchildren, even if you don't have children, for how they will deal with conflict. That even how you're working on your marriage or not working on your marriage, this will actually be the cue that your great nieces and nephews might look to in their relationships. That what we so often forget is that the decisions we are making today actually become the pattern and the example for generations. And this is what I want to explore in and through kind of an odd story today. And so I want to take a look, really, at how the decisions you make today are echoing out into the future. And I want to do that in and through looking at the story of Joseph, Jacob, and Esau. So that's where we're going to be going today, kind of really exploring this story, which shows us that the decisions you're making today do last and linger into the future. So I want to begin by telling the story of Joseph. Now, the story of Joseph is fairly well known because of his, you know, Technicolor dream code and movies and all of that. But just because we are familiar with this story doesn't actually mean that we know it. So I want to kind of tell it um, in kind of a short, condensed version, and then I want to notice some things in it. Okay? And so Joseph and his fighting with his brothers actually is really different than many of our kind of sibling rivalries that we might have. It's really actually destructive. It's really unhealthy. And so I want to explore kind of what happens. And this all kind of comes in Genesis 37 and 39 to 45. So what happens is in this family, Jacob actually tells everybody that he pretty much has a favorite child and that favorite child is Joseph. Now, what all parents realize is that if you have a favorite child, you shouldn't name that, right? I'm just joking. Uh, You shouldn't obviously have favorite children, but Joseph is the favorite child of Jacob. He is really privileged and he really is favored in so many ways. There's so much favoritism that was given towards him. So this starts to create resentment, obviously, with Joseph's other brothers. 
And then Joseph starts having dreams. And he has dreams, actually, of his brothers bowing down to him, right? Of his brothers bowing down to him. And he says that this is a word from God. Now, imagine if your sibling came to you and said, I have a dream, and it's from, the God, from God, right, that you will actually bow down to me. This causes, then, for the brothers, obviously, a lot of resentment and bitterness, so much so that they decide to actually kill Joseph. That's how dysfunctional this family is. That's how, you know, troubled they are. They decide to kill Joseph. But then, cooler heads kind of prevail, and they realize rather than just killing Joseph, they could sell him into slavery and actually make money off of him. So why don't we do that instead? So that's what happens in this kind of family, is that his brothers actually take him and they sell him off, and he gets sold as a slave to Egypt. And then, if you know the story of Joseph, there's a lot of ups and downs, and Joseph eventually gets thrown in jail. And while we don't know how long he's thrown in jail, and this is all on, like, trumped-up charges, but he's a slave, so what voice do they have? And what we know is that Joseph was likely in jail for 10 to 12 years. We're not sure, but if you look at the biblical timeline, it's likely somewhere in there that he was in jail for 10 to 12 years. 10 to 12 years. With nothing to do but to brood and think. Now let's put ourselves in Joseph's shoes. That if you're in jail for 12 years, really because your brothers got angry and sold you into slavery, what would you spend your time thinking about? You'd probably spend most of your time thinking about, like, revenge, right? Like, isn't that really the plot line of so many movies and TV shows today? Like, someone gets harmed or injured or whatever, they get insulted, and then they really feel that revenge is the right path. So you can imagine that Joseph might have spent a lot of time dreaming of revenge or dreaming of moments where maybe his brothers would come to him, but the position would be reversed, where he would be the one in charge with power and position, where they might grovel to him, right? And through an amazing kind of series of events, what ends up happening, actually, is Joseph's entire life has changed. He actually becomes the second in charge of all of Egypt. He actually raises up, and he becomes like on a first-name basis with Pharaoh. And so things radically change for him. And that's where I want to pick up the story and to find out what happens then. So we read this in Genesis 42, okay? We read this, that all of a sudden there's a famine that strikes all of the land. And this includes the land of Canaan, where Joseph's family is, and also the land of Egypt. So we read this. Why are you standing around looking at one another? This is Jacob's, uh, this is Jacob, Joseph's father speaking. He says, why are you standing around looking at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down and buy some uh, for us before we all starve to death. So Joseph's 10 older brothers went to Egypt to buy grain. It says this, since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt, like in charge of everything and in charge of the sale of grain, it was to him that his brothers came. They bowed low before him with their faces to the ground, and Joseph recognized them instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger. I love sometimes these lines in the Bible like that. Well, of course, it says Joseph recognized them instantly because he's been thinking about them for 10 years while he's been in prison, right? He's been thinking about them and picturing them. Yeah, I imagine for sure that, that he recognized them instantly. But there is no way his brothers, who thought he was likely dead or a slave, would ever assume the man in power dressed as an Egyptian is their brothers. And so through a series of kind of amazing kind of events, what ends up happening is, is we see Joseph's reactions to his brothers. When they come really groveling, when they come really begging for grain. And do you want to know what Joseph does in this moment? And we read it just a few chapters later. Do you know what Joseph does? He forgives all of his brothers. He forgives them. He actually accepts them. He actually weeps over them and welcomes them in. This, this is incredible. This is just kind of like wild because this isn't how anyone normally or naturally reacts. 
Like if somebody sold you into slavery when you hadn't really done anything wrong, right? If somebody really betrayed you that way, our first and natural instinct is not to forgive and to welcome, right? Just think through in some of our relationships that we've had, even over the past two years. How easy is it for grudges to build? How easy is it for bitterness to build? How easy is it for friendships and relationships to fracture and divide over small things, right? Not something like, you know, his brothers actually contemplating murder and then selling them into slavery. Like Joseph's reaction is incredible. It's not what is expected. It is not normal. And it isn't certainly kind of the standard way that many of us would react. So the question is then, is why does Joseph react this way? Why does he give grace rather than like justice, really? Why does he welcome and forgive when he could have said no? Right? What is it about Joseph that enables him to act in such a counter-cultural, and in many ways, we put it this way, a not normal way? Well, I think many of us, our natural inclination is to say, well, Joseph acted this way with like grace and forgiveness because he's so close to God, because he's a righteous person, because he spends time in prayer and all of that. And those, those are, I understand those answers, but that's actually not the answer the Bible gives. Because the Bible actually is really clear if we read it really, you know, paying attention to details for why Joseph reacts this way. And the reason why Joseph reacts this way with grace, with forgiveness, with welcome and with mercy, the reason that Joseph reacts this way is because Joseph has been in this exact same situation before. That this is like deja vu for Joseph, except in the time he was in it before, he was the one coming groveling. He was the one coming and begging, and he received mercy and forgiveness from someone else. Because Joseph actually went through this exact same situation pretty much just a few decades before. Because as we said in the very beginning, the choices we are making today last and linger and actually echo into the future for generations and for decades. That's the Bible's perspective. So I want to explain to you and show with you how Joseph actually was in the same situation before and how a previous decision by his uncle Esau is setting the trajectory for his choice today. And so to understand that, I got to share with you a little bit about Joseph's father, Jacob, and his uncle Esau and who they were. Okay? So Jacob and Esau were very dysfunctional. They fought all the time as well. There was a lot of rivalry between them, similar to in Joseph's family, because this is just true. This stuff and this junk, it just gets passed on, family to family, you know, generation to generation. Unless it's changed, the dysfunction just kind of continues, right? And so what we know about Jacob and Esau is really this, that Esau is a strong man. He's like a warrior. He's a fighter, a soldier, a hunter. Jacob is kind of a schemer. He's really a deceiver. He lies and he cheats and all of that. And what happens in their relationship is Jacob really cheats his brother out of what is called his birthright and his blessing, okay? And these are really big things in the ancient day. So Jacob cheats his brother out of his birthright. And what the birthright was, was actually um, the position then that the firstborn would have. And this mattered a lot back in that day and age, because if you're the firstborn, do you want to know what you received? You received double the inheritance of everyone else. And so Jacob steals this, actually. He steals this birthright. And you also become the person who's in charge of kind of the family. So what Jacob really steals from Esau is power and wealth, which, which as you know, likely, is a lot of things that can cause division and fracturing in a family. And then Jacob also steals this blessing from uh, Esau. And this is, you know, this really intimate moment and personal moment between his dad and him. And so Jacob really steals everything that matters to Esau. And then we see Esau's reaction, okay? Esau says this. 
Esau hated Jacob because he had stolen his blessing. And he said to himself, my father will soon be dead and gone. Then I will kill Jacob. This is in Genesis 27. Then I will kill Jacob. This is dysfunction. This is difficulty, right? And so Jacob does, actually what he always does, is to lie and to cheat and to hide. And that's what happens, okay? He lies and he cheats and he hides. But eventually, where he goes, his cheating ways catch up to him there. Because this is just true. There are always consequences for our choices, right? Like our ways always catch up to us. And so what ends up happening is, is Jacob needs to travel back to connect with Esau. He needs to move back to his homeland, okay? And I want to pick up the story there and to see what ends up happening. So what we read is that Jacob sends a messenger to Esau because he wants to kind of butter him up, really, because he knows that his brother is going to try to kill him. That's what he remembers. So he sends a messenger to uh, Esau, and this is what he says. He says, humble greetings from your servant, Jacob. He's trying to say, I'm lower now. I'm actually going to serve you. I'm not going to try to be the one in charge. I'm not going to try to steal anything. This is what he's trying to do there. He says this, I've been living with Uncle Laban until recently. And now I have oxen, donkeys, sheep, goats, and many servants, both men and women. What is he doing there? Jacob, Jacob is wise in some ways, right? He's kind of a wily guy. What he's saying is, is I'm wealthy now. I'm wealthy now. I might have something to offer you, Esau, to try to maybe, I don't know, come together in some way. Jacob is really actually bribing his brother in and through this. That's what's going on there. He says these, I have sent these messengers to inform you of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to us. Of course he is, hoping that you'll be friendly to us. He has nowhere left to go. He needs to move kind of back home. And now, all of a sudden, his past choices are catching up to him. Because that's just true. That always happens. Your choices catch up to you. And so what ends up happening is these messengers go out to Esau, and then Esau sends a response. And this is what they respond. Listen to what happens. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said this. We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And listen to what the text says. With 400 men. With 400 men that 400 men are coming with Esau right now. Did you catch that? 400 men. This is not like 400 guys with picnic baskets for the first family you know, picnic or barbecue in decades. No, 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 400 men, like armed men, like people on horses. Like this is an army because what do men do? Like they, they pillage, they, they control, they war. That's what Jacob is assuming. That the moment that he sends out this messenger and he's trying to kind of butter up Esau, Esau says, yes, I'm coming and I'm bringing 400 men with me as well. You can imagine the fear that Jacob has. You can imagine some of the, the terror and some of the worry and anxiety. The text says this, that Jacob was terrified at the news. Yeah, I bet he was. I bet he was. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have any defenses. He doesn't have any real hope. So what he decides to do is he decides to split his family up into two columns, okay, into two columns. He sends one of the columns ahead with the hope with this, that perhaps if Esau comes and attacks one column, perhaps the other column can actually like escape. So he splits his entire family up into two columns, okay? And then uh, we read about their encounter in Genesis 33. Listen to what it says. In the distance, Jacob saw Esau coming with his 400 men. Like this is huge for that day and age with his 400 men. Jacob now arranged his family into a column with his two concubines and their children at the front. Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. Now, in the Bible and especially in the Old Testament, there aren't like random details. Things are there to actually clue us into what is happening. And if you pay attention, notice with me, who is named, 
Who is named that is there and watching this entire thing unfold, this really messy drama between Jacob and Esau? Esau, who wants to kill Jacob. Jacob, who was terrible to Esau. Who is there? What does the text say? It says that Joseph is there. Joseph is the only one who is mentioned. Joseph, out of like the other 11 brothers, he is the only one who is named specifically. It says this, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. That Joseph has a front row seat to see what is going to happen between Jacob and Esau. Joseph is there and he's wondering, and he's full of anxiety likely, because he knows his life is on the line as well. So the writer of Genesis tells us that Jacob starts to approach Esau, kind of on his own, kind of in no man's land, where he could just be struck down, killed, or whatever. Think through if you're Joseph, who's he looking at? Who's he looking at? He's for sure looking at, you know, his dad, Jacob, but who else is he looking at? He's also looking at Esau to see how his uncle, who he has not seen in like 20 years or ever, actually, how is he going to respond? How is he going to act in this moment when Jacob is coming, really trying to find some forgiveness, trying to maybe mend some things a little ways, right? How is Esau going to respond? Is it going to be with fury and vengeance and condemnation and punishment? Or is there going to be any act of mercy and compassion and hospitality? So we read this in verse four. Then Esau ran to meet him, speaking about Jacob, and he embraced him affectionately and kissed him. Both of them were in tears. Then Esau looked at the women and the children and said, who are these people with you? These are the children that God has graciously given to me, Jacob replied. Then the concubines came forward with their children and bowed down low before him. Next came Leah with her children and they bowed before him. Finally, Rachel and Joseph. He's named again, Rachel and Joseph came and made their bows. The text is super clear. It is unequivocally clear that Joseph is paying attention this whole time, that he is seeing all of this, that he was there when his uncle, his uncle Esau, didn't just respond with vengeance and with fury, but responded with mercy and hospitality. You have to think that for decades later, right, for years later, maybe these guys sitting around the campfire, that Jacob might have said to his sons and said, the only reason we are here is because your uncle Esau spared us. That I was awful to him, but he spared us. He chose not to exact vengeance, but chose to give mercy and forgiveness. Think about how this would have shaped Joseph. Think about how this would have shaped that family. So, so that when Joseph is in a very similar situation, like 20 years later, when his brothers are coming to him kind of groveling and begging, when he has a moment to choose between vengeance, right, and maybe some condemnation and some punishment, when he has a choice to choose between vengeance and mercy, what does Joseph choose? He chooses mercy. He chooses forgiveness. He chooses compassion because he has already been through this before. He's been on the receiving end of it. He lived through this entire interaction with his uncle so that when his brothers come to him, he knows the right way to respond because this has already happened once in his life. Because what the Bible is trying to point to us in this story is that the choices that we make today do actually have an impact in the future. They echo out into the future. And Esau's choice, Esau's choice to forgive actually shapes the entire trajectory of Joseph's life. So that when he is in a similar situation, he knows how to act because he is taking his cue from his uncle who he saw years and years and years ago. Because as I said, the choices we make today become the legacy that we leave for the future. That's what this story is all about. 
I think one of the challenges we have in our world is just this. I think that when it comes to our relationships, we so often live as if the choices that we make today are entirely disconnected from any future realities. I wanna say that again. That so often today when it comes to our relationships, we live as if our choices today are disconnected entirely from any future realities. But what this story teaches us is that our choices do echo into the future. They actually do impact generations. And when it comes to the Bible's thinking about our choices, the Bible thinks in generational and relational terms about impacts that actually last and linger for decades and generations upon generations. We don't think this way actually in the West. And I think we need to. Because one of the things that has been so grieving to me over the past few years is when people have been making you know, difficult and I would say at times often even unwise choices, what they are really doing is setting the trajectory for their lives. What they're doing is setting the trajectory for decades. So when people in the past two years have really been acting with division and anger, this is actually teaching their great-grandchildren how to respond. That when people have actually you know, come into difficult situations with conflict and they've responded with you know, uh, shunning and just ghosting people, this is actually training the next generation for how you deal with conflict. That what we are seeing really in the lives around us is that people are not making decisions with the future in mind, but just right now. Not at all aware of how the decisions you make today are the legacy that you will leave in the future. And that the choices you are making right now, this is going to actually impact generations from now. That's what we see in this story. Esau makes a tremendous choice and it actually changes everything. Because it is true that our poor decisions are going to echo into the future. But what is also true is that our faithful ones are also going to echo into the future, that they're going to change lives even now. That's what we see in this story, that Esau makes one really incredibly difficult choice to forgive and to welcome, and it actually saves generations, right? It saves Joseph and the rest of the uh, family of Jacob, and it actually sets the trajectory for the rest of Israel, that Esau with one choice is really uh, saving the future of so many lives. That's what this story teaches us. So what's my main point today? My main point is actually really simple. That the choices you make today last and linger and echo into the future far more than we ever realize. That the choices you are making today, whether good or bad, that they actually have future implications. That they actually have future consequences. That the choices you make today last and linger and echo into the future. That's what we see with Esau, with really with one choice, how he saves and changes the trajectory of literally all of Israel. And that's also what we see in our lives, that the choices we make today have huge, tremendous impacts. I bring all of this up to talk about really mending relationships. Because as I said, I don't think in the West, we often think in this way. We do not think of generationally. We do not think of things being passed on. We do not think that the choices we are making today might be the examples that we are setting for generations. But I think we need to learn to think this way because this is actually how the Bible thinks. And this is also what you have likely experienced. How many of you could say that you are actually have been affected by a choice that was made 10, 20, 30 years ago? What we know is that some of our decisions do last and linger into the future. We just don't think about it enough. So today, if you want to mend relationships, I want to invite you to think differently about the future. Think about the future that you are creating. Think about the legacy that you are leaving Think about what might happen if the choice you make today sets the pattern for your family, friendships all around you for generations and for decades. And so to help us to maybe think a bit differently about our choices and to really break out of this, I don't know, Western way of thinking that our choices just affect right now, 
I want to give to you three steps to kind of enter into a more biblical way of thinking, which, as I said, is generationally, and it's about our relational impacts. I want to give to you three little steps, okay? And they are stopping, thinking, and choosing. Okay? They are stopping, thinking, and choosing. And I think if we can start to put this stuff into practice, it will change and mend and heal our relationships. So the first step, if we're going to actually start to live a little bit differently and think about our choices differently, much more like the Bible than the world around us, is that we need to learn to stop before we make choices. That I think what is happening today so often in a world of instantaneous communication, of like instant likes and comments and you know, uh, responses, that so often what we are doing in our relationships is we are just reacting. We are just reacting. We get hurt, we lash out, we don't really think about how is this decision maybe setting the course for the future. We don't often think that way. So I think the first thing we need to do is when we are in difficult relationships, when we are in you know, challenging places, is to actually stop and to think about our choices first. The Bible actually talks about this really clearly. And James, uh, James says this, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. In Ecclesiastes, the message translates this verse really excellently. It says this, don't be quick to fly off the handle. Anger boomerangs, and you can spot a fool by the lumps on his head. Or this uh, verse in Proverbs about a gentle tongue is also good, where it says this, gentle words are a tree of life. That if we're going to actually have better relationships, the first thing we need to do is to stop just reacting, and we need to actually just pause before we make any choices. Because as I said, right now, I think it's so easy for us to make choices just about today and not at all thinking about how does this affect generations from today, which is what the Bible actually wants to invite us into. So the second thing is we need to not only uh, stop, but then we need to actually secondly think. Here's what I mean by think. I think we need to actually put ourselves into the future and to think about what kind of future is this choice here creating? This is what the Bible is really entering in us into. It wants to invite us to really expand our thinking to see really about how the choices we make today do impact the future. So for me, something I've done frequently, and as we know, this might sound a little bit weird, but I'm a little bit weird, so that's okay. What I often think about, what I often think about is what would future Andrew wish that I had done? This is a question I often ask myself, and it's always in the third person, yes. What would future Andrew wish that I had done? That what I do when I come to a difficult decision, what I do is I try to stop, and then I try to think about, in the future, when I'm looking back on this choice, how do I wish I would have acted? And I can't tell you how helpful that's been. Even through all the past two years of COVID opening, reopening, of all the churn, for me to think through, as I'm looking back on this in 20, 30, 40 years, how do I wish I would have acted? And when I thought about that, I realized I want to act with like, grace, I want to act with compassion, and I want to draw people and uh, really invite people to follow Jesus. So those things then help me to make choices. And what that does when you actually think about the future is it pulls you out of the present and all the pressures and tension and it allows you to think about what is it I want to leave behind? How do I want to act now that becomes the future I'm a part of? And I think the Bible invites us to do this as well, to make really our choices based on eternity and where we are headed, not just the present moment. So Paul says this, he says, let heaven fill your thoughts. Or he says, walk by faith, not by sight. Think about the future and where you're going, not just the present day concerns. Or he also says this, so we fix our eyes on what is seen, um, but on, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
I think far too often right now, we are making decisions, especially in our relationships, based on things that aren't eternal, that aren't going to last. But this is how we need to actually shape and change our thinking. We need to stop, think, and then lastly, we need to actually choose wisely. We need to choose wisely. And I know, as soon as I say these three things of stop, think, and choose wisely, it's very easy to say them. It's hard to put into practice, though. It's really difficult. That's why I think we need to pay attention to stories like this that we read of Esau and Jacob and Joseph, how it really teaches us that the decisions that you make will become the stories you tell and the legacy you leave. The decisions you make today will become the stories you tell and the legacy you leave. I think this is what we need to think about. We need to choose wisely. Because what if the choices you're making today become the cue for your great grandkids, your grandkids, your great nieces and nephews, the relationships that are around you? What if the choices you're making today is the example that is set for them and the pattern that they follow? Right? What if how you're treating money for you, whether you're generous or hoarding or whatever it is, what if this is the example you're setting for future generations? What if how you're treating difficult relationships with whether it's like division and ghosting and anger is actually treating your kids how to treat you in the future, right? This is what's being passed on. Your choices for good or bad, this is actually affecting future generations. What if how you're dealing with that temptation, what if how you're dealing with work, whether you're working all the time, what if some of the difficult things you're going through, this is actually setting the trajectory for your family. This is what we need to choose with and to think wisely about that the choices you make today are the future you will be living into. And I know that this is a strange way for us to think because we don't think this way in the West, but we need to. We need to realize that the choices you are making today are going to last and linger and echo into the future. This hit me actually in kind of a funny way this past weekend. This past weekend on Sunday night, uh, I took Hudson to go see his very first concert ever actually. Kind of his first like big boy concert. Hudson turned 12 in January. So what I did was we bought him tickets for his very favorite band, which is Imagine Dragons. So he loves this band. He knows like every song. And so we went to go see this band in London and we kind of did it up. We got like pizza pizza beforehand. We got slushies when we got in. I even got him like a hoodie to kind of commemorate the whole thing for his very first concert. And he just loved it. Like it was so good. He sang every song, was bebopping the whole time, just moving around and dancing and just had an incredible time. And as we were driving home, still singing all the songs, and Hudson is just, he's like overjoyed, thinking about, dad, this was the best, best birthday gift ever, dad. Like so excited. As we were driving home, and I'm on the 401, it kind of hit me all of a sudden. It hit me that Hudson will do this with his kids. Hudson will do this with his kids. Now, of course, of course, I don't know if Hudson will have kids, but I can tell you that if he does, you know what he will do? He will likely take them for their very first concert with him. Right? That just as I did this with him, he's going to do that for them. Right? It hit me how in these small things, we are actually creating a future all the time that we are somehow unaware of. It hit me, you know, driving home from the Imagine Dragons concert, that my bet is that if Hudson has kids, that he will do this with his kids because I have done this with him. Because this is just our actual real life things that our choices we make today last and linger into the future. We just so often never consider that. We never consider what is the future that this is creating, right? How many of you do things simply because your parents have done them, right? We often fall into those patterns, right? Things get passed on from generation to generation. What I want to invite you to think about today is what are you passing on to the next generation? What are you passing on to your great nieces and nephews or grandkids or whatever it may be? that what we see with Esau is because he makes an incredibly hard choice, it changes everything for a family around him. This is what I think we need to consider. 
when we are making choices, how will this impact others? How will this impact decades from now? How will this impact generations? Because what is my main point? My main point is really simple, that the choices you're making today last and linger and echo into the future. So how can you make better relationships and mend relationships? I want to invite you to stop, think, and choose the right choices that matter for decades. To stop, think, and choose the right choices that matter for decades. To not make short-sighted, just pressure-filled decisions, but to think about in 20, 30 years, how do you wish you would act today? Because what's going to end up happening is we will actually reap the consequences of what we are choosing today, whether that is good or bad. So what's my challenge today? My challenge is really simple. To choose wisely in your relationships this week. To choose wisely in your relationships this week. Because the choices you are making are the future you will live into. So make good ones. Make healthy ones. Make ones that should last and reverberate and echo into the future. Ones that you are proud of. Ones that will make an impact. And beware of short-sighted, quick, and angry decisions. Ones that will also leave an impact for you in your life, but one you may not want to find in 10, 20, or 30 years. My challenge is this, this. Would you choose wisely in your relationships? Because the choices you are making today is the future you will be living into tomorrow. So with that, would you join with me in prayer here this morning? God, I ask. I ask in all of our relationships. Would you help us to give us a greater sense, a greater sense, God, of what we are choosing and what we are living into? Would you help us to see things deeper and wider and to make wise and discerning choices, choices not just for today, but for decades from today? I pray, God, would you help us, if we have difficult relationships, to know and to discern the right things to do? I help us, uh, ask you to help us, God, to be like Esau, making those hard choices that do shape a family for generations. I pray, God, as we continue to move in all of our relationships, would you guide us, would you speak to us, and would you help us to give us courage to do the right things? And we pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.